forward to 2047 where we get to celebrate 60 years of faithfulness and then 90 years of faithfulness. And I probably won't be here then, but we'll see. Maybe 120, who knows, whatever. Jesus come back before that. But I am uh, really a big fan of the Christmas season. Um, I think one of the big things that I love so much about the Christmas season is, uh, well, there are a lot of things, but I think for me it's real easy to sometimes get lost in uh, a couple of things. My wife makes some fantastic, she calls it Crispix mix. And I eat, yes, there's an applause. Anyone else? Anyone else want to give her a round? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, she makes some fantastic Crispix mix. And my mom makes some fantastic fudge. And I swear, come Christmas season, I just have fudge pumping through my arteries. Like, it's silly. But uh, that's why I look the way I look. But there's, there's the fudge. There's family. There's all that good stuff that is so fun about the season that we just... Uh, kind of came to an end that we're wrapping up right now. As we get to look forward to the new year, the Christmas season is so exciting, but I'm worried that sometimes we get lost in it. These are good things. Fudge is good. Don't let anyone tell you fudge is not good. <laughs> right, Feists? <laughs> Zero sugar? No, fudge is delicious and it is a great thing. Um, Crispix Mix is fantastic. Family is a very, very good thing. Celebrating all of this good stuff. Gifts are good things. But I'm worried that oftentimes we miss Jesus in the midst of Christmas. I think a worry we run into when we are looking at the Old Testament, uh, there are three of them that I narrowed it down to. I think just like how we miss the Christmas story oftentimes, and I know if you remember the Foothills family, you didn't miss the Christmas story, right? Right? We all love Jesus a whole lot. But sometimes we miss the point just like we miss the point of these Old Testament stories. Have you guys been reading the Old Testament ever in your life and read it and said, man, that was weird? Anyway, I'm just, <laughs> let's just turn the page. <laughs> All right, let's keep turning the page. We get lost in these Old Testament stories because there's so much confusion about people and places and where's Dan, where's Beersheba, where is Israel, where, who's the king of this? I'm trying to remember, wrap my head around all this stuff, and we get lost just trying to remember a set of stuff to memorize. I, it's happened to me probably more times than I'd like to admit. I get lost in trying to make sure I have this stuff memorized. I get lost and I miss the point of the story. We hear be like Sermons. Here's the third one that I want to make sure we avoid today. We hear be like and don't be like sermons. I think that's a problem with the Old Testament that we often face in our churches today. Here's Moses. Be more like Moses. We, we narrow these people down to a set of moral do's and moral don'ts. And it's go be like Moses. Go be like David. Don't be like Saul. Do be like Samuel. Maybe take it or leave it. And we just narrow it down. We get in the New Testament. We do the same thing. Be more like Paul. Be more like Timothy. I don't think that that's the end goal of these stories. I think there's more to these stories than just be more like David. Be less like Saul. We even saw a glimpse of it in the video. He narrows it down. And I love these videos. These videos are I almost said they slay. That's too millennial of me. I'm sorry. These videos are killer. That's even more millennial of me. These videos are great. They are splendid. They are superb. I love them. They are. I fancy them. They're great. These videos are awesome and I love them. But even today, I want to make sure we don't narrow down the book of 1 Samuel to be like David, don't be like Saul. That is a worry that I have run in my life. I don't ever want to let you guys settle for sermons that say be like David. So there's the risk we're going to run as we look into the rest of this Old Testament series through Route 66 and for the rest of the time we preach. We're going to run that risk of giving you guys be-like sermons. Don't let us. Don't let me. Don't let us give you be-like because that is not the point. Here's the big idea of where we're going today. You guys know I like to give you the big idea. Here's the big idea. It says the story about David is less about a a good king and more about a great 
and righteous God. This story of 1 Samuel, and I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. Um, we're going to steal a couple of verses from 2 Samuel. I, uh, sorry, but we're going to because, like, I said, like they said in the video, it is one big scroll that's been cut in half. One big scroll that was just too big to carry around. If only they had iPhones 3,000 years ago. But they didn't, so now we have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Instead of just three, we have six. Complicated, I know. But here's the big idea of First and Second Samuel. He's introducing the origin of the Davidic line. You guys heard that term before, the Davidic line? We're going to unpack it more in a couple seconds, but the Davidic line. This is the origin of where the Messiah comes from. And if we narrow it down to be more like David, don't be like Saul, then we're missing something key. So again, our big idea, the story about David is less about a good king and more about a great and righteous God. God, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for your goodness in this uh, Advent season that we just came out of. God, thank you for wrapping up 2017 um, in ways that manifest your glory and magnify your glory in such spectacular ways. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to be reliant on you. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to see you more clearly through this text. God, show us a clearer picture of your son, Jesus. Show us a clearer picture of you. And show us a clearer picture of what it looks like to devote our lives to following you more than anything else. We love you, God, and we pray this all for your glory and for our joy. Amen. So here's the thing. I know you guys all complain that I talk too fast. I get it. I'm sorry. I'm probably going to talk fast again today because we have a bunch of stuff to cover, and then we're going to put a ribbon on it at the end. You guys cool with that? Do I have your permission to fly through some of these stories? You guys know the stories. David and Goliath, you guys have heard that before? Anyone? <laughs> we know the story of David and Goliath. We know the story. Preach. We know the story that we know these stories from First and Second Samuel. They're Sunday school stories that you've heard before. So we're going to fly through them to get to the main point. Do I have your permission to hustle through the next 20 minutes? Thank you. All right. Big idea number one, David's anointing. Here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is where the story of David begins. And I'm just going to read the italic stuff, and then you're going to see some other things that are a little more emphasized. We have italic, and then we have red italic. It's going to be exciting. You'll see it when it comes up. But here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to read it for us. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. Now, what just happened is Saul has begun his decline. Saul was the king. We saw that from the video. Saul is the king, the anointed and appointed king, and he is still ruling. He is still reigning. He is still making the decisions. He is still the figurehead. However, we notice that he has a huge character flaw, and he's begun his decline. He's no longer a good king. He started off pretty good. He made some good decisions, won some battles, did this, did that, but now he's on his decline. And we see that he started to make bad decisions and the Lord's appointing, the anointing of, De of, uh, of Saul is now being withdrawn. So they need a new king to come and fulfill. And he says, how long will you grieve over Saul? God speaks directly to Samuel. Side note, how incredible would it be to just hear the voice of the Lord? I think that'd be fun. Back to this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will it take for you to grieve over Saul? He's done. He's saying, get over it. Go. Fill your horn with oil. It's a weird thing that they used to do. They'd grab a ram horn and they'd fill it with oil and then they like pour it over the anointed. It's a weird thing. Hopefully we don't do that anymore, just dripping people with oil. It's kind of gross. But it's what they did. That's how they anointed the king. And then what happens right after that? He says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite because I have provided for myself a king 
among his sons. Side note, who did the providing here? Who is he providing it for over here? I did it for myself. I will provide a king for myself. I've anointed him. I have control here, Samuel. Trust me. But what does Samuel say? If Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. If Saul hears what I'm going to do, if Saul hears that I'm going to go anoint another king and the anointing is going to come off of him, he's going to kill me. How often do we have such strong convictions, but we, I mean, for lack of a better term, chicken out? We chicken out of what we know God has put before us. So I want to draw our attention to that. I have provided for myself. God is in control of this stuff. God knows what he's doing. Yeah, I understand Saul might come after you and try to kill you, Samuel, but I think I got it under control. And so we see again, we're going to narrow in on this idea of trusting the goodness of God. He is a good God who knows what he's doing and he has control. Let's continue on. It says in verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance. This is after uh, Samuel has gone and Jesse, the father of David, has given him a bunch of his sons, good-looking sons, tall sons, muscular sons, sons maybe that were a little more round on the edges like me, whatever it was. No one laughed at that? No one liked that? No one. Round on the edges, get it? Thank you, Cindy Gers. A bunch of sons he says no to. Samuel's saying, of course it's coming. But no, the Lord says this to Samuel in verse 7. He says, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You guys ever judge a book by its cover? I'm sure you can think of a dozen times in the last week. I'm sure I can think of a dozen times in the last week. Man, I grew up learning don't judge a book by its cover, but I still do it. I still do it, and there's something else going on here as well, and we're going to continue to wrap it up and put a bow on it, but put a note in that real quick, and then we'll come back to it. No, it's not your other sons. There's one more son that you haven't shown me. Verse 12, he sent and brought him in. This is David. He was ruddy. Anyone know what ruddy means? Ruddy's a, I didn't know what this means. I had to Google it, but essentially it's like a pinkish in your cheeks. It's kind of funny. It's like childish. It's not a term we use anymore, but maybe you do. I don't. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, just dunked the oil on him. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose and went to Ramah. The moment that David is anointed, the anointing from Saul is now released. And then fast forward to the next couple chapters. What happens is the evil spirit or a spirit, it actually says a spirit from the Lord is coming and tormenting Saul. So the Lord's anointing is coming off of Saul and being placed onto David. And this is the origin. Like I pointed out, this is the origin of the Messiah to come. This very instance right here, people are pointing this out as one of the keys. There are two big keys in the whole book of Scripture. There are two big keys in these chapters. There's one here in 16 where the Lord rushes upon David and is anointing David. And then another one we're going to unpack. It's 2 Samuel 7. We'll get there. It's point number three. But, but two big keys in Scripture that I don't want us to miss because this is huge. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that day forward. And David, as we know, is going to make great victories. He's going to have great victories. And he's also going to have some great perils. But the Lord's anointing is on him. And he continues to trust God. So here, that's the first point. And again, we're going to hustle through this. I'm sorry if it's not clear yet, but it will get more clear. David's victory, 1 Samuel chapter 17. You guys ever heard of David and Goliath? It says, 
there's a monster. It says, and there came out of the camp of Philistine a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Sounds funny to put on, but it's metal. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now, a shekel, I just want to show you guys. A shekel is uh, 11 grams, and if you multiply 11 by 5,000, that's 55,000 grams. If you do some simple math, 55,000 grams converts quickly to 121 pounds. That's just simple math for you. Just wanted to point that out. <laughs> I used a calculator. I'm sorry. It's huge. That's a, that's a monster. This guy's big. Again, I saw the Dead Sea Scrolls when I was a kid, and they spent so much time trying to figure out what the deal is with this Goliath guy. Was he six feet? Was he nine feet? I don't know. How big was his armor? They spend so much time investigating this stuff, and they're missing the point of the story. They spend so much time just trying to calculate all these things like I just did. I got lost in the calculation of it. Who cares if it was 121.254 pounds? Who cares if it was 10 ounces? Who cares how, much, how big the thing is? The guy's a beast. The point the author is making is this guy is a beast, and no one will fight him. Pick up in verse 6. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Don't know what that means. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and the shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and you will serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that will fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. A man wants to come and defy the ranks of Israel. Have you seen this guy? This guy's a beast. He has 121.254 pounds of armor on his chest. This guy is a monster. They say he's nine feet and a span. I don't know what a span is. Probably a hand. They say six inches. He was nine six is what some people say. Who cares? He was a monster. This guy's a beast and no one wants to fight him. Have you seen him? Surely he's going to defy Israel. Like he said he's going to defy Israel. Like of course this guy's going to beat us. Like we don't stand a chance against this monster. This guy's a champion. They call him the champion of Gath. Goliath the champ. This guy's going to wreck us. We don't stand a chance. Little David, little ruddy David. Little, they call him beautiful. Beautiful and ruddy David comes up. What are you guys going to do for the person who takes away this guy's reproach? What are you guys going to do for the, the one who comes in def- and, and, and champions over champion Goliath? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Who does this guy think he is? Little tiny David. I don't know exactly how old he is, but I picture him as a little boy, ruddy, pinkish in the cheeks, doesn't have a beard yet. I don't either, so he could be up to 26. I don't know. But he's a little boy, and he comes up and says, who does this guy think he is? He's a Philistine. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He's going to try and come against the army of the living God. Do we realize our history? Do we know where we've come from? Do we understand the things that God, our God, the God of our armies, the God of Israel has brought us through so many things? Who do we think we are to get lost in missing that we have been brought here by God? 
Goliath is a beast. But God is in control of this again. And it took a little boy to realize <laughs> that God is in control. There's more going on here than just, I'll get to that in a second. Verse 33, and Saul says to David, this is after David says, I'll go do it. He says, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him for you're a youth. He's been a man of war since his youth. Like He's been training for this his whole life. I played basketball with uh, our very own Aldo Ruiz. You guys know who Aldo is? He is a, uh, he's a baller of ballers. And I played basketball with him one day, and I destroyed him in a three-point contest. Not true. He wrecked me. <laughs> he wrecked me. Yeah, he wrecked me. It was embarrassing. The kid can hit threes. But it's, it's this difference between I played baseball my whole life, and I played basketball in fourth grade. <laughs> we, we were undefeated, and I scored eight points the whole season. Like, I had a couple boards, but, you know, I'm, I'm not really a baller. Uh, I played baseball, but I, I mean, it's, it's this idea of this kid has been training his whole life. Uh, I, I played basketball in fourth grade, and I had pants with pockets in them, and I wore tennis shoes, and I was not a basketball player. Still, I'm not. Look at me. I have the height, but I don't have anything else. Um, it's this difference between someone who's been training his entire life, and Saul realizes that and says, David, you're a boy. Stephen, you're a boy. <laughs> you cannot take him. He's been training his whole life. But David gets something. David understands something. And David responds to Saul with this long-winded thing, but we're going to read it together. It says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. David talking about himself here. And when there came a lion or a bear and, uh, and it took a lamb from the flock, whenever anything came and brought an issue, 35, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Kind of like little bunny foo-foo popping up. The, anyway, verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, oh my, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be one of them. Again, read us for emphasis. He's defied the armies of the living God. I know we talked about it in the video already, but there's this element of trust that David doesn't miss. David doesn't miss this trust that, hey, it's not about me versus Goliath. It's about this guy coming against, coming against our God, our God that has brought us through to this point today. Who are we to think that this uncircumcised Philistine is going to take it from us? Yeah, he's a beast, but have you seen the other armies that have come against us? Have you ever seen the other battles that we won? Have you seen that really big sea that we crossed? Like, I, I, there's been a lot of crazy stuff in the past of Israel, and David's saying, hey, yeah, I can, I can fight lions, I can fight bears, but this guy's coming against the army of the living God, and I know God's not going to let this nine-foot, six-foot, whatever he is, beast, come against us. I'll throw a slingshot. God is in control of this. He continues. You come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you, what? With a slingshot. No, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. What is David relying on here? Is he relying on a slingshot? Is he relying on his ability to take the, go the goat of the, of the, the, the beard of the goat and bop it down? No, he's not relying on this stuff. What is he relying on? The name of the Lord of hosts. In all of these circumstances, he keeps coming back and saying, no, 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 they're coming against our God. No, 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 I realize that they're big. I realize that they have powerful armies, but they're coming against our God. I realize he's a beast with a big old piece of armor and a big old javelin, and a big old sword. But he's coming against our God. 
verse 40, where were we, 46. That this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Sounds confident. And I'll give you the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Whose battle is it? One more time, whose battle is this? Is this David and Goliath? On the one hand, yes, but on a very real sense, is this bigger than just David and Goliath? David doesn't get lost in this. He realizes, hey, this is a big battle, of course, but this is the Lord's battle. There's a God of Israel who's bigger and better than any Goliath character, than any Philistine army, than any throwback to the old, further in the Old Testament, than any Red Sea, than any, than any Egypt, than any fill in the blank. But so often we miss it and we minimize the story to just a little boy and a giant that he conquered. This is a graphic. I was going to take it out, but I mean, it's in the Bible. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in a bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead. And he fell on his face to the ground. Uh oh. <laughs> That's no good. So, have you ever seen a Bible study like this? This is not our church. Young Married Sunday School, we don't have that. Also, it took me until last night to realize that that's a gecko climbing up on uh, some plants. Anyone know what plant that is? I don't. Anyway, whatever the plant is, he's crawling up on the plant. There's a gecko on top there. He conquered a giant. Way to go, gecko. David and Goliath, go conquer your giants. (laughs) Conquer the giants in your life. Here's a book. I've never read it, but a book I found on Google. Five giants every Christian must conquer. It's a cool Shutterstock image of Goliath wearing a tie. Here's the San Francisco Giants, hashtag 2002, booyah, go Angels, World Series. Friends, we, we miss Slay the Giants. We get so wrapped up in these stories of what is literally happening right on there. Like we, we get lost in the event rather than what God's communicating to us through his scripture. David and Goliath is a huge story, but the story actually isn't just about David and Goliath. It's not just about, hey, go conquer your giants. Should you conquer your giants? Yeah, do it. But I don't think that's the only thing this text is talking about. I don't think it's the only thing. Hey, go figure out that big thing in your life and you go do it. You got it. God's on your side. Yeah. Whose battle is this? It's the Lord's battle. This Philistine is coming against the army of the living God. Is he going to triumph? Is David going to stand for that and let this Goliath, this beast, triumph over Israel? Certainly not. Why? Because David has a reliance on God. David is focused. David is devoted. David is convinced that there is nothing stronger. There is no one more powerful than the living God. Yeah, that guy's a beast. That guy can probably bench four times me. Whatever he can do, he's a monster. But David gets this and he's trusting that God has a plan. That's a theme we've been weaving through scripture. God has a plan and God is doing something. We oftentimes don't see it until the end, but God is doing something. And he's working and he's moving. And there are great triumphs 
in the name of the Lord. Have you ever devoted something to God? And what I mean by that is, have you ever said, God, if you give me this promotion, I will promise to devote it to you. God, give me this promotion and it will be for your glory. God, give me this, this next, I mean, and we can embellish it and go all sorts of different ways. We can say, God, give me this new car and I will use it for your glory. God, give me the, the discipline to make a 2018 New Year's resolution and stay focused for your glory. God, I, I swear I'll, I'll pray every day. I'll read the Bible every day. I'll do this every day for your glory, God. And we say that and then two weeks in, what happens? And then we say, no, God, I'm going to use this this relationship for your glory. God, I promise if you give me this relationship, it'll be for your glory. If you give me this promotion, it'll be for your glory. If you give me this raise, it'll be for your glory. If you give me the, the health of my child, it'll be for your glory. We, we pray for these things. We pray, God, do it, and it'll be for your glory. And then so often, what happens? It turns into just another thing that has happened. Oh, yeah, I remember that story three years ago when this happened. Oh, yeah, I remember 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, I remember at the beginning of my college career when I was supposed to do this, and instead this happened, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and God did it, the end, and I forgot about it. How many times have we devoted something to God? God, I want to give you this, and then we take it back. We forget about it. We miss the God behind it all. Stuff happens, and we celebrate it, and then we move on with life, and we forget that God had a huge victory now, I'm going to read a little too far into this story, but I, I look at this and I wonder. I mean, I, I know they have stories of David and Goliath nowadays, but I mean, how much longer did it take for Saul to forget, man, that little boy just destroyed this giant and it was God. It was God who did it. Man, this little boy just had the courage to do this, to conquer the giant. Then he moves on and, all right, what's the next battle? All right, what's the next thing on our plate? What's the next thing we got to get done? What's the next this? What's the next that? What's the next big step we can take? We get lost in it. I don't want us to get lost in the celebration of our last 30 years and our next 30 years, but in the middle of it, we rely on God. You can call it a giant that we're facing. You can call it something that we need to overcome, but no, no, we, we look at the goodness of God in this. We look at the goodness of God in this transition. We look at the goodness of God and what is to come and what has been, and we never forget what's been, but we look forward with celebration, knowing that there is a God who is in control of the angel armies who has our future in his hands, and he is going to bring us through. Point three, David's covenant. Here's where I steal a little bit of what Craig is going to be unpacking in the next couple weeks. Second Samuel 7. This is a key passage. This is the other key. This is called the Davidic covenant. This is a key text in the Old Testament. Why? Because it shows us, again, the promise where God says, David, I'm bringing a Messiah from your line. Something big is going to come from your blood, from your seed. Something big is coming. Trust me. Here we go. 2 Samuel 7, verse, we'll start in 1. Now the king lived in the house. This is talking about David now. Fast forward 20 chapters, David is now king. Now the king, David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding armies. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do it. Do what you want to do. What he's implying here, David says, I live in this sweet house. Like, I got a pad. I got my castle. I got, I'm the king of the castle. I'm doing my thing. I need to build something for God. God, remembering again, 20 chapters later, remembering, hey, there's a, there's a God that's living in a tent. 
I think he means well with this. So Sam or Nathan says go. This is a lot, so let's summarize it. Uh, we formatted wrong, I'm sorry. But it says, uh, essentially, I'll summarize it for you because it got cut off. But he's coming up and he says, hey, I want to build God a, a, a house of cedar. Like, I live in cedar. I'm going to build God a house. And God responds. And then uh, God responds and says, no, I thank you for the, uh, for the thought. But we're going to do something else. I'm going to build you a throne instead. David's thinking, I, I, I got a throne. Didn't you hear me just say, I, I live in a house of cedar. Like, I have this all figured out. I'm, I'm the king. Like, I'm resting from my enemies because they can't even come uh, against me anymore. Like, you've given me all these victories. We're good. I want to build you something now. God says, no, I'm giving you a throne. But I already have a throne. And here's where he says it specifically. Verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Skip down to 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Who's making him a house? The Lord will make for you a house. But God, I, I created this empire. Look at all this stuff I did. I haven't lost. I keep winning. I don't lose. I keep winning. I keep conquering these enemies. I keep doing all this good stuff. I don't lose. God says, I'm going to make you a house. Thank you for offering to make me a house, but I'm going to make you a house. And what happens? I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. The offspring that I bring after him, I will bring him to a place where he builds a house for my name and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. This is God promising David, there's someone coming from your line. There is someone coming who's going to establish a kingdom that has no end. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now again, to put ourselves in the shoes of David for a second, that sounds kind of funky, right? <laughs> like, oh, that's, who's, what's, that's weird. Like, I mean, yeah, I want to have a long legacy, but like, forever is a long time. <laughs> it's going to be a while. But no, again, God's promising him. Whose promise is this? Who's doing the work? Who's acting? Who's moving? God is the one acting and moving this entire time, promising David, hey, there is good to come, and there's going to be someone who comes from your line. You're going to have a child. And this child is going to shake up the world forever. A greater David is coming. David, I thank you for wanting to build me a home, but instead I'm going to build you a throne and a home that is never going to end. It's going to come from your seed. It's going to come from your line, and there is going to be nothing that can ever come against it. Why? Because it is going to be established forever. It is going to have no end. It's not you. It's someone who's coming. You know where this story's going? The promise of a son. Here's old David and Bathsheba. Verse 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. So David sent messengers and took her. This beautiful woman that he sees named Bathsheba. She was very beautiful. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Yada, yada, yada. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Job. Seinfeld, anyone? Anyone get that, Seinfeld? Thank you, Rick. <laughs> In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand of Uriah, her husband. In the letter it wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Fast forward, Uriah the Hittite also died. Bathsheba's pregnant. 
David starts stressing out and says, oh, what do we do? Let's kill him. Whoops. So he does that. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. Now, but she was mourning over the loss of her husband. She's pregnant. And David has displeased the Lord. What happens? David and Nathan, if you guys seen VeggieTales, this is the uh, rubber ducky thing. Uh, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, here's something that just blows my mind. The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Another word for that is he has passed over your sin. David was a guy who was anointed, and then he slayed Goliath, huge victory, and then 20 chapters of victories, and then God makes a promise with him and says, I'm going to establish your line forever, and then he continues to win battles and do all this incredible stuff, and then chapter 11, oops. He's got a lot of good stuff that he's done, plus now he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, probably on multiple accounts. I mean, this is one story we hear, but... David has now kind of tainted his reputation. And what does God do? It seems kind of unfair. He says, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. He displeased the Lord, but it's all good. Does, does anyone, does anyone see that as like, huh, wait. That doesn't sound just. That doesn't sound right to me. How do you, why, why him? Yeah, he like killed Goliath and stuff. Yeah, he has a, a, a line who's coming behind him, but like, that's not fair. Do you see what he did? Do you know the history of what David did and you're just putting his sin away? It doesn't seem just. Where is the justice in this? Nevertheless, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. Again, what? You've utterly scorned the Lord, but it's okay. We're going to put the sin behind you. No big deal. The child who is born to you shall die. Oof. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David sends his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he's dead. The child has died. Verse 21, then his servants said to him, what is this thing you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. It was customary to be weeping and fasting and responding to the death and grieving the death appropriately, and David's not doing it very appropriately. Verse 22, he said, while the Lord was, excuse me, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will not return to me. Why should I fast? Why should I weep? Why should I do this stuff? He's dead and he's not coming back. Now there's a tension here that I want us to feel. Two things from that story that I want to pull out real quick. The Lord has put away your sins. Again, does that sound fair? Does anyone see the justice in that? Hey, we're just going to ignore your sin. No big deal. Doesn't sound like the character of the God of Israel that I've read up to this point so far. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious? The child's dead and he's not coming back. But didn't God promise David? Didn't God promise David that someone was coming from his line who was going to have a kingdom that didn't ever end? An eternal kingdom that would last forever child's dead. He's not coming back. If you guys will allow me to go to the book of Romans, I know I try and keep in the same text we're preaching. Let the author speak for himself. I don't want to take the words of the uh, author of First and Second Samuel out of his mouth and give them to Paul in Romans, but 
Paul reads this passage and he sees something in this passage that is inspired by God. That's why it's in the Bible. He sees something differently. Verse 23, you guys have heard this part before. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Again, he says put away in Samuel. It's the same word. He put away, he passed over, he overlooked former sins because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How is it that God is still just for passing over the sins of adultery and the sins of murder and the sins of sins of sins of sins that David committed, all the stuff that David did? How is it fair that God just overlooks it? Because there's someone coming who's a greater David. He's going to die, but not actually die so that his kingdom can last forever. He's going to be the one who atones for all of our sins. He's going to be the one who puts the ribbon on top. Yeah, we have this incredible story of this incredibly good king who did really good things and did great things in the name of the Lord, also did really bad things in whatever he did, <laughs> decided to do. He, did, he made his mistakes. He had his flaws. He had his triumphs. He had incredible things. And he had his mistakes. But this was a guy who had the focus and the devotion to God, even in the bad things. He was trusting that God was going to carry him through. So really, this story might even not be about David at all, as much as it is about this true and greater David. This true and greater David that Paul just mentioned. Might be about someone bigger and better than King David. The story of First and Second Samuel, this, it, it, again, it's all one narrative. This story of First Samuel that we've been touching on a little bit in Second Samuel, maybe this story is actually more about God's anointing. Who did the anointing? wasn't David. He was just a little sheep, sheep boy. He was ruddy. Whose victory was it? David and Goliath. Goliath comes against David? No. Goliath comes against the armies of the Lord. Who makes the covenant? David doesn't really do much work for this covenant. He just sits there and says, I'm going to build God a house. And God says, psych, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a line forever. I'm going to build you this kingdom that has no end. And he's going to come from a son David gets a son and he compromises. You guys think I was going to say God's compromise? <laughs> Didn't happen. God's continued grace and provision in and through David's compromise. We spent all this time looking at the story of David. And again, I told you that it's so easy to get lost in the focus of looking at these characters and these stories and these places and the timeline and the dating. And how many years ago was this? I don't know. It doesn't make sense if I don't know what, that it was in 3000 AD. All right, cool. But we get lost in focusing so much on just David and the size of Goliath and was it Bathsheba? Were there more than Bathsheba? We missed the whole point of the narrative that God is working in and through and behind and in the midst of our triumphs, our great successes, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our compromises. God is moving, God is working, and God has a plan. So, Again, our big idea is the story about David is less about a good king, more about a great and righteous God, the true and greater David. Here are three takeaways for you guys. God is in and behind the miraculous. You guys saw that? 
It was God's battle. It was God's war. God was the one working and moving and all this stuff. In the midst of the miraculous, he is so good and he's also giving grace, hope, and joy in the horrendous. In the huge sins, the <laughs> biblical sins, the sins that we look in the Bible and we're like, ooh, that's a, he messed up real bad. In something of that gravity, God is still working and moving and showing his grace to restore his people and redeem his people. There's a true and greater David. In 1 Samuel, he's coming. In 2017, he's already come. He's established this kingdom that has no end. He's established this kingdom. He has worn the sins that he was passed over in previous days. In the midst of difficult circumstances, don't get lost in the story of people and, this, uh, and the little things. You guys know, <laughs> you guys got a letter in the mail last week? Our church is under transition. There are questions. You guys heard the announcement on the screen? Like, here's a list of your elders. Call your elders if you have a question. There's stuff coming up for us that's exciting. It's not horrendous, I don't think. I think this is an opportunity for us to be excited about the future of what Brad is going to, Brad and Marjorie are going to be up to and the future of what Foothills is going to be up to. This is an exciting time for us. But it's a time where we need to continue to rely more and more on the strength of God. I could easily say, hey, go conquer a giant today. Hey, just go get them, tiger. Conquer your five giants. Every five, five giants every Christian should conquer. Something about the San Francisco Giants. Just kidding. But I could say easily, go conquer your giants. But it, it, I don't think it does the text justice. It's continue to rely and devote yourself more fully to be reliant upon God. In this season of transition, in this new year ahead, continue to focus more and more on the goodness of God and the strength of God. You can get pretty far on your own, but it's going to end. You can do great things in your own name, but it's going to have an end. The God who's behind all of this is orchestrating all of this, and he is a good and gracious God who has us in his palm. He knows exactly the future of your 2018, your 2019, your 2025, and he has the future of foothills in his hand. He's been faithful for 30 years. He's going to be faithful until his plan here is done. So pay close attention to the God behind it all. It's so easy to get lost in people and timelines and stories. In the Old Testament, in your life, and whatever you're going through right now, it's so easy to get lost in what is actually happening on the ground level, but don't ever get it mixed up with what's happening at a higher level. Pay close attention to the God behind it all and trust the God that is behind it all. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your sovereign hand over all things. Thank you for giving us this story of David that actually is more of a story about you and your character. God, again, I pray that you don't let us minimize these stories to just lists of moral do's and moral don'ts, but God, show us the goodness that you have for us in the future, in the past. Remind us of the good things you've done and show us of the good things that are to come in this new year and in this new season. We thank you for being so good to us, God. We pray this all for your glory and for our joy in the journey. Amen.